0: Hello and welcome to Interanauts, the fortnightly CSIRO podcast where we talk about breaking science discoveries from around the world, Australia, and inside the CSIRO. I'm Jesse Hawley and I'm joined by Sophie Schmidt, hello, and our producer Adrian Walton. Hi everyone. Today we'll be chatting about Neanderthals, Nickelback and the End of the World, discerning mandrel rumors and we'll have a guest speaking with rob kinley a CSIRO scientist who has identified a moving technique to drastically reduce greenhouse emissions wait what nickelback nickel we were just talking about Uh. nickelback before i thought i chucked them in there uh Uh, first up i'm gonna talk about some CSIRO research on the end permian mass extinction and nickel All right, you guys, this sto- story has many parts, so it's going to take a little dissecting. Okay. I'm going to need your help. Okay. First things first, there have been five major mass extinctions in Earth's history. Really? Everyone knows about the dinosaur one. Yeah. Pretty much every Big separation, deal. like Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous, each of those borders in between them, there was an extinction event that gave ah. way to the next ones. So that's why those um, demarcations there in the first place. Right. Um. But this one, the worst one, largest ever, completely messed everything up. Everything went wrong for the Earth. At the same time, it's uh, the worst day for Earth. Uh, it's like everything ha- happening, like Earth getting rained on, stepping in dog crap, breaking its legs. This really bad one is called, uh, it was on the border between the Permian and the Triassic periods. Oh,
1: Sophie, do you remember that? Oh Yeah, it was oh. a bad day. It rained, I think, didn't it?
2: It It, <laughs> for was, a long time. it was so
0: bad. It's so bad, it's got ten names. And rain. <laughs> it's got 10 names. Yeah, yeah.
2: Was it just a day or did it go for longer?
0: It's not known how long, but it was probably quite long.
2: Mm. What a bummer. Um,
1: Are we talking years? Are we just talking days? Are we talking months? Are we.
2: Perhaps
0: even. I guess million, we don't know. Do we? Millions of years. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, but wow. it's so bad. You'll see. Okay. It's the great undoing. It's called uh, colloquially the great dying. So. That's bright. What happened? Lots of volcanism. Uh, in Siberia, there's these dirty big volcanoes, and uh, called the Siberian Traps, and they belched out enough magma to cover all of Europe. Wow! Big trouble. Crap. Uh, huge changes in global and ocean river temperatures, with some estimates that the height of the temperature doubled, of the annual fluctuations. Oxygen just got depleted from water. Was so, that
2: because of algae or something?
0: Uh, could have been microbes in the water, mm. but we'll get there. There are, there are lots of different hypotheses. Uh, so I'll tell about what died in the Great Dying. Take every single species that's alive in the oceans, invertebrates like uh, corals and, and sponges and things, and invertebrates, fish, etc. 96% of species disappeared. Gosh. Whoa. It's tragic. Uh, three out of every four species of backbone animals in the land went extinct. So that's... They went around then, but your pandas, birds, reptiles. Three out of four extinct, kaput. And it's the only time on Earth where there was a mass extinction of insects. It was absolute anarchy. That's why it's called the Great Dying. So a lot of things happened at the same time. Uh, Very aggressive volcanism. Uh, Volcanism
1: is just volcanoes going off, yeah? Yeah. In plural.
0: Yeah. Uh, Process of that. Yeah. Makes sense. Okay, sorry. I don't know. It's a good question. Um... (laughs) <laughs> could have been a- he
1: said while patting me on the head. <laughs> That's a
0: good question. Uh it could have been a meteorite. right? I'm not sure what the evidence is for that. But um there were huge changes in the carbon cycle. And one idea is that uh microbes who are involved with uh cycling uh carbon and releasing it as gases like carbon dioxide and things into the air, they just bloomed and blossomed and we got a runaway amounts of methane in the atmosphere which uh, resulted in global warming which just messed the tides and the temperature differences in the water, stopped currents, reduced uh, reduced oxygen. So what they don't know and, and what the CSIRO research is about is explaining how the microbes actually got to a number where they could explode and actually change the whole globe. Um, so... There are these uh, marine microbes called archaea. They're like, related to bacteria, and they eat carbon compounds. They're at the bottom of the ocean. They eat carbon compounds, and they uh, they recently, at this time, mm-hmm. evolved a, a pathway that allowed them to eat the carbon compounds around them and and give out methane as a byproduct, as farting basically. Mm. Um, but this pathway that allowed them to do that digestive system uh, had nickel as part of the part of the pathway. Like you, if you imagine when you take in oxygen. Uh, you've got iron in your blood cells Mm -hmm. that actually allows you to hold onto the iron that's a necessary part, hold onto the oxygen a necessary part. So this part of the uh, microbes, they needed nickel but it's a very scarce metal, especially at the bottom of the ocean normally it's like in the middle of the earth or in magma and they've got no access to it so that was limiting their numbers. So here is where the cluster fluff began. Um, All of these volcanic incidents, the volcanism Blew up Europe's worth of magma into wow. the air. The landmass of Europe, yeah, equivalent of mm-hmm. magma went into the atmosphere, and now previously researchers said that would be well enough to explain this bloom in algae mm-hmm. or bloom in microbes, but um, metals can't magically get from in magma to the atmosphere and then into the water. So this is where the CSIRO research came in. They observed that when nickel is formed in magma with bubbly air bubbles inside the magma. They can hitch a ride, this other chemical um, intermediary Reactions. reaction, to to the top of the surface and, uh, and actually explode and get to the atmosphere and then settle and go into the water and the food chain and kickstart all of this hullabaloo. Ooh. So what they actually found was they got, right in a modern day in Siberia, there are these Norilsk deposits of nickel, which is the most valuable source of nickel on Earth. S- these researchers got um, access to some of this ore, looked at it, 2D and 3D x-rays, and little cross section of like a fossil almost. And they found the gas bubbles with pieces of nickel.
1: We're talking things that are microscopic, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So we're talking microscopic fossils.
0: Uh it's evidence of action that was happening in what is now metal and rock. Oh right, okay. Um
2: And sorry, were they looking at bubbles? They found bubble fossils?
0: Yeah, yeah. Bubbles with which were in the magma, which right. is now hardened into ore, which is being mined. And attached to these gas bubbles is the nickel, and they're actually adhering, just as the theory is suspected. So it seems as though when this magma came out from the center of the Earth, it carried with it all this nickel, which was the limiting factor for all of these microbes. Once they got a hold of that, they weren't limited by nickel, and they just went mental, Hmm. fighting their way to the Earth's destruction. (laughs) (laughs) Fighting their way to the top. (laughs) Not many people fight their way to the top or bottom, but um, it seemed like... It was just nightmare. So then when when the the water's got less oxygen, you get animals decaying, dying. Uh, Animals that make carbonate shells, like crabs and and snails Mm -hmm. and things, they can't extract minerals to make their shells. They're just dead. Um, And then no oxygen. The land just gets messed over big time. And that's the Great Dying. That was it. Wow,
2: that's an incredible discovery to find the... Um, the nickel like that.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, hitching a ride. They, they compared it to uh, the gas bubbles would be uh, hot air balloons and the the chemical that the nickel is in would be the little basket attached to it and they just sail away to the atmosphere.
2: How could it have been preserved like that? Do we know?
0: Um, I, obviously, the magma
1: was magma still was so wet or?
0: Must have cooled rapidly in, or, in order to capture the bubbles. Yeah. So even, you know, you've got the ice cores and they store the oxygen mm. of the atmosphere at the time. It must cool rapidly enough to actually preserve the, the bubbles in there, literally. Mm. That's interesting stuff. Really interesting. So much stuff in that story. So gone? much.
2: I feel sad hearing it. It's happened. Yeah, it's and in we the past.
0: That actually kick-started dinosaurs to happen. Dinosaurs went around before them. It, it wiped clear everything that was then, and they were there. And then the asteroid wiped them clear, and now we're here. So thank you, arkia and the Great Dying, because we wouldn't be recording this show. Next up, Sammy's going to talk about the downside. <laughs> you can't just jump
1: into something.
0: Let me process what the heck just happened. Next up, Sammy's going to talk about the downside of hanging out in groups with special reference to monkey troops and their poops. Wow. Did <laughs> you write that true? yourself? Yeah. <laughs> That's really good. Round okay. of applause for Jesse, ladies A
2: <laughs> group of scientists are led by Francis. Center for Functional and Evolutionary Ecology. That's France, the country.
1: Yes. Sorry? Yes. I thought not, Francis. Not France's, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was not just Francis, about that. the tuck shop lady.
2: But we got through it. Cool. Uh, they were published in the journal Science Advances. Advance. Advances. Okay. They uh, they studied why some mandrills avoid others at grooming time. And they found that, uh, as it turns out, mandrills sniff out each other's poop to socialize and stay healthy.
1: What you don't? <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's
0: based on schoolboy textbook.
2: <laughs> I'll unpack that a little. Please do. So
1: make sure to wash your floor afterwards. <laughs> just not on the floor, there, please.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: not
1: again.
2: <laughs> In laugh, it's too long. <laughs> In terror, poops. <laughs> Uh, Mandrills are a group of large West African primates. They have, they're have they distinguished by their red and blue faces. Have you seen them? They have no. blue uh, genital regions for males as well. Is that right? It's true. All of it. Okay. Uh,
0: Darwin called them the uh, most colourful mammals. And I think he's right.
2: Hmm. Um, they are especially known... Uh, some,
1: he hasn't met some of my mates. <laughs> That's all right. We didn't need that one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> they they practice communal living, just like humans, and they're especially known for a type of behavior called mutual grooming. That's when two monkeys clean each other's fur off and it's known to reduce help it's known to reduce stress and help uh, social bonds. Yes, right? in both parties. Mm, yes. Yeah, mutually beneficial. For it for it's kind of a big deal. Um there's good stuff that comes with it, like picking out fleas, um, combing out hair so you can make your mate look all Good and spruced up um, But yeah Thinking about long term um, It flags social acceptance Because if you're good enough To be groomed by someone It means someone loves oh, you Someone out loves there. you
0: It's always nice to be cuddled and touched
2: Sadly the story takes a turn they <laughs> She's l- not going to touch that <laughs> They <are laughs>
1: Leave it on the floor She will sniff it later
2: Stop it they, Mandrels actually prefer to sniff out Each other's perianal areas
1: Right I can't be accused of making this one silly. No.
2: Uh, well, that just comes part and parcel with the grooming. They notice that... Um, does it really?
1: My hairdresser doesn't sniff my perianal.
2: <laughs> I mean, that's not really mutually beneficial grooming, though. What does the hairdresser get out of it? Good yeah. chat. Gets to spend 30 minutes with me. Pay a peanuts. <laughs> Um, It seemed odd to the scientists looking at the mandrills. They were studying them as part of a wider study. They noticed that some mandrills avoided grooming others at certain times, and they wanted to find out why. It seemed weird because mandrills spend an average of 9% of their time grooming each other's perianal areas.
1: Nine. 9%. 9%.
2: Um, Why? Wait, wait,
0: one second. They spend 9% of their time grooming the perianal area or just any area?
2: Any area, I think. Oh, oh. okay. Spending <laughs> oh. <laughs> one-tenth of your time on the butt that
0: seems wrong. I think we can all agree. Manduril or not, something's has got a gift. Hunting and gathering for food, they do that. No, I don't
2: know. 6%.
0: <laughs> is, is the food around the perianal region? Because I'm not interested. I've got, I got 10% yeah. to stick off.
2: <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, anyway, it comes down to smelly poop. Um, not okay. just ordinary smelly poop, we're talking about smelly parasitic poop.
1: Yes, you are listening to Internauts. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, so thinking about humans, we do a lot ourselves to avoid diseases, right? Like, we don't touch pedestrian light buttons, we touch it with our elbows, in Jesse's case. If you're a little bit
0: crazy. what well, do you do that? Yeah. <laughs> really? I use my knees sometimes.
2: <laughs> anyway, they, okay, so they studied this by monitoring a group of 25 mandrels over two and a half What's years. What's a
0: mandrel? The world's largest monkey. Thank you. Carry on. <laughs>
2: um, they were looking at firstly how often a mandrel got groomed by its peers, mm-hmm. and then they looked. They broke that down by which mandrels got shunned and which ones didn't. Oh. Then they determined which mandrels were infected by this particular parasite called Balantidium coli, of otherwise course. known as B. coli. Is it a bacteria? It's um, not a bacteria. It's a protozoan parasite. Um it's known to cause dysentery. She showed you. <laughs> she
0: did. <laughs> Gave me a little knowing nod as well. <laughs> yeah. She delivered that fact and went
1: up <laughs> yours, mate.
2: <laughs> you looked unsure and I was like, No, I know it's true. Cool. she done her homework. Oh, I didn't know. Mm. Um, anyway, um, so they collected fecal samples of the monkeys, and yeah, so that was a logical thing to do because... Oh, of
1: course it was. You're telling me.
2: <laughs> it's the main way this gets transferred through the gut, oh, right. primarily. The
1: bacteria that's not a bacteria. Y- yeah. The exactly.
2: parasite. The parasite. And so they found a correlation between reduced grooming time, how often you get groomed, no grooming if you are infected with this parasite. hmm um, and so the other mandrills stayed the heck away if you were infected, and they didn't groom it at all, um, or very, very minimally. They essentially used the poop as a warning sign.
0: Ah. So, if it wasn't already.
2: <laughs> um, they had to actually prove, though, that they could sniff out this chemical sort of signal y- in the poop. I was going to ask. Okay, yeah. carry on. Um, They found, they did this by treating some of the formerly known as infected mandrels. And when they got treated for their infection, they were welcomed back into the grooming circle. Um, They did that by treating 16 mandrels um, and noticed that they got groomed again. So they deduced that the formerly infected poop, um, once treated, became chemically similar to the others. Mm. Mandrel noses picked up on it. Um, They also... Placed some samples of poop around um, in some locations, so normal poop and parasitized poop. Um, and they found, yep, the mandrels definitely wanted to avoid that yeah, they could smell it out. parasitic poop.
0: So important to uh, be able to observe those signals to suggest an unhealthy individual. I was telling Sophie, I was one of those unfortunate kids that caught chickenpox at 18 years old. So kids. <laughs> psychologically, psychologically. We're all psychologically kids. I, um yeah, at that time was going to university and uh, stayed home. And I remember just being covered in them. I had like ticket box on my eyelids. It was horrendous. And I went to Civic Video to hire out some DVDs and I put them on the counter. And the staff member at there just looked at me, looked at the DVDs, and they like, did the whole transaction from like three feet away, Um like pushing it away with a stick. Oh, you want wow. to
2: return them? Like shove them into a pit of fire. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Thanks.
0: They're extinct anyway.
2: Well,
1: what are chicken pox or those DVDs?
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh
1: well, let's mention them again. <laughs> Jesus.
2: Well, people have looked a lot at that uh, behavioural sort of pattern in humans, but it's not been looked at often in animals. It's called behavioural behavioural immunity. Um, two two well known instances. There's lobsters that don't share dens with other other lobsters if they have um, a deadly virus. Hmm. And there's also tadpoles that don't swim along other parasitic-infested tadpoles.
1: So they basically have diagnosed themselves, these animals?
0: No, other ones have diagnosed the other ones. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, Mm. themselves
1: within their species.
0: Yeah.
2: Mm. It's usually observed in relation to mating, um, so they don't choose a partner because of this. But grooming is not necessarily leading to mating. (laughs) Right. It's just a day-to-day activity. So the
1: grooming isn't done by... um, by couples, for want of a better term. What do you call couples in the animal kingdom, Jesse? It could be a couple. A couple, okay.
0: Yeah, mating pairs.
1: Mating pairs? I think <laughs> it's Is there just a scientific
0: name for... It's a free-for-all.
1: Copulating pair.
2: Yeah, it sounds good. It's um, really interesting, though, because parasites, okay, they rely on hosts to spread to other hosts. But then it's this toss-up between paras- avoiding parasites and communal living because there's so many benefits with communal living and having the social relationships. You get. Well, you get to sniff all that shit for one. <laughs> yeah, I chalk that up to a win. Protection, um, co-grooming, so that gives you hygiene and, nutri- and nutrition. Uh, you also get to, you know, carpool and share resources if you're in a community. You're better
0: able to get food. You can have I like mean, a hunter. monkey's drive.
2: <laughs> I assume they could, if trained. Has anyone done that, Jesse?
0: I haven't seen it. Okay. There was an ad. Jesse's the
1: expert today. With,
2: <laughs> yeah. Whenever we talk monkeys,
1: <laughs> I'm the monkey guy. when are we going to tell everyone that you're actually a monkey?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I am an ape, as are you. Methane is a much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, trapping in up to 30 times more heat in the atmosphere than CO2. 200 to 500 litres of methane uh, can be produced by an individual cow per year. How do they measure that? Bags. What's strapped to the back end of a cow? Made that up. I'm not sure. All right. And there are. Wire- <laughs> I was just
1: seeing like big black garbage bags, just taped gaff I, taped to the back really end of it.
0: Really embarrassed to wear those. Yeah, don't they have dogs where they have got little nappies so they walk around? So you have to scoop. Really? <laughs> have you seen them? No. Yeah, I may have made that up too. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so there are. Welcome
1: to Interrnaut. Some of it's true.
0: <laughs> We're not going to tell you which bits. Uh, there are one and a half billion cows, each producing two wow. to five hundred litres of methane, thirty times more dangerous or at trapping, trapping heat than carbon dioxide. So cows and methane are significant contributors to global climate change. We're about to speak with a CSIRO researcher, Rob Kinley, who is working on an alternative to grass to feed to cows to mess away, massage away some of this mess.
2: Rob, uh, could you tell us why cow farts and burps are such a big problem?
4: <laughs> well, first of all, a cow doesn't fart all that much. We're going to say probably 90%, 95 even percent of the emissions are burp related, not fart related. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit of a mess. But <laughs> um, why it's such a problem is because they do so much of it. The uh, uh, the food that they eat is fairly fibrous, and the, the bacteria in their gut, uh, in the process of turning that into useful um, particles for the cow to use, uh, a waste product of that is methane, which is a very potent greenhouse gas.
0: How, um, how potent is uh, methane? Like, on what sort of scale is it affecting the global climate?
4: Well, relative to carbon dioxide, at this point, it's about 30% more potent uh, over the short term. Uh, it has a, a shorter lifetime in the atmosphere than carbon dioxide does. But while it's there, it's, it's much more potent. And every year, the uh, international community increases the potency so um, even three or four years ago, it was rated at under 25 times. And then it went to 28, and now it's up to 30 times is the estimated potency compared to CO2.
0: And when you say potency, you're talking about its capacity to, to trap heat in the atmosphere? What exactly?
4: Yeah, it's global warming potential mm-hmm. is is what that refers to.
2: Um, You've been working on changing the diet of cows. Uh, I understand that's your primary research. Can you tell us a little bit about where that idea came from?
4: Yeah, you're you're sort of correct there. We're not changing the diet of the cow. We're adding little things to try and change the way that that gut microbial system uh, creates waste and, and actually try to have the waste product be more useful to the animal. Mm -hmm. So we've been using seaweed uh, in our latest uh, efforts, and I've used many different types of of additives to the feed to try and do that, but uh, I came about this by way of, uh, well inadvertently really, Mm -hmm. because back in Canada where I come from, I was working for a group uh, while I was at Dalhousie University who was trying to commercialize a seaweed product? So this one farmer, very innovative man, he noticed that cows in his paddock closer to the ocean were doing better than the cows in the landlocked paddock.
0: Oh wow! So this beach,
4: this beachfront paddock, um, the animals were easier to handle. They were just more docile. Uh, they produced more milk. They were uh, spent less time on mastitis which mastitis is what happens when they get infections uh, in their udder. So the milk has to be thrown away, so there's a full-on waste there. So what he did was he now he started to drag that seaweed to the paddock where the uh, that was landlocked, and it was very quickly those animals started to catch up to their mates in the uh, oceanfront. And so he gave up farming. Uh, to take on the um, commercialization of the seaweed and wanted to sell it so that all farmers could have use of that. And that's the way he would make his income. But in order to sell it, now he could give it away, but he couldn't sell it commercially until the Canadian Food Inspection Agency uh, gave him uh, a certification to do so. And in order to do that, it had to be tested. And that's where I came in. Uh, I was doing the testing for him. Uh, measuring gas emissions wasn't part of that. That was just uh, an animal health test. But I had the ability to do it and the uh, technical facilities to do it. So I measured the uh, emissions of greenhouse gases while I was doing it, and what? And I noticed that the um, uh, methane was 20% less in the fermentations that were getting the uh, the seaweed. So from there. It was f- fairly easy math to figure out that the uh, the seaweed was um, redirecting the energy that would otherwise be lost as methane. Keep in mind, methane represents about fifteen percent well anywhere from ten to fifteen percent of the dietary intake of the animal is lost as gas, so that 's directly uh, a loss of feed energy but it 's also a loss of energy or of financial expenses by the farmer to uh, to feed the animals
0: What a, uh, a fortuitous discovery so not only were the cows themselves happier, less prone to infections you're also getting better bang for buck because their food isn't being wasted as this uh, this useless byproduct that's great
4: oh, Well listen, it goes deeper than that because now we have um, well that, that process sent me on a global search <laughs> I said 20% is good but I think there must be CBs out there that can do more than that And so I went on a global search, and after testing upwards of about 50 different seaweeds around the world, um, I came uh, upon a study uh, that was financed here through uh, Meat and Livestock Australia, and CSIRO, and James Cook University, and uh, teamed up with Rocky Denice at James Cook University uh, to, um, to measure a series of seaweeds, and one of those was this asparagopsis seaweed. And while we were testing it, uh, I was something really strange happened uh, at the instrument when I was measuring the gas. I couldn't see anything. Uh, so I actually thought the equipment was malfunctioning. So until I repeated it, and I repeated it again after that, and I was repeatedly getting no measurement of methane. So mm. that seaweed had reduced methane to a level at which it couldn't be measured
0: oh, Wow. Wow. So
4: that, that that was extremely awesome. Uh, this one just packed a bigger punch than anyone ever expected.
0: Yeah, speaking of um, being aware of the chemistry of the algae, how exactly does algae get involved with the the methane-producing process in the cow's gut, and um, how does it reduce methane altogether?
4: Well, there's bioactive compounds um, that vary widely uh, depending on the species of um algae that you're dealing with. This particular one has halogenated compounds created as a defense mechanism uh, against infection in the ocean. So when that seaweed is attacked by a microbe in the ocean, it will release these compounds. These are bromoform based compounds that um, defend the, uh, the seaweed, and they just happen to uh, also have an effect on the enzyme actions in the gut. So there's the particular type of microbe that produces methane as a waste product creates an enzyme that's based on vitamin B12. And that's deactivated by the compounds in the seaweed. And so life goes on as normal in the inside the gut of the cow. Uh, the microbes are still there. It's just that at the very last step that changes the waste product chain into a molecule of methane, it's cut off by deactivation of that enzyme. So what will happen, unfortunately, though, is you can't feed an animal the seaweed a couple of times and it will stop producing methane. Uh, what will happen is as soon as you t- stop feeding the animal the seaweed, it will go back to business as usual.
0: So you have to, uh, the, the animal has to get the seaweed every day. Such a uh, beautiful solution there.
2: Yeah, and I mean, because it does need to be fed that consistently um, and thinking about um, implementing it on a more wider scale, um, could you tell us a little bit about what would be needed to make it a commonplace food source for cows?
4: Okay, you've just identified the number one barrier to, to getting it out there as the game changer that it can be. Now, that barrier is supply of the seaweed. So far, for all our research purposes, we've used wild harvested seaweed, which means Rocky's group at James Cook University has been going down with scuba divers uh, and cutting the seaweed and stuffing it into bags with snorkelers coming down and collecting the bags. And so you can well imagine the cost of that.
2: Yeah, I'm sure uh, these cows don't appreciate how good they've got it.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
4: yeah, this particular seaweed is available uh, for human, uh, well, as a delicacy in Hawaii. Uh, it's called limu kohu, is what, the, is what it's called. And it's quite expensive. Wild harvested stuff tends to be that way because it's not easy to get. But we are working on filling the gaps in the supply chain. And we're talking with people in China that already have farmed seaweed on large scale. We just need to convince them that it's economically uh, viable and valuable for them to, to grow this seaweed instead of the ones that they are growing, or at least replace it in part.
0: So that's uh, my final question, Rob. What is next for you in the research into methane emissions and algae? Is it, is it scaling it up and dealing with China like that, or do you have other plans in the research pipeline?
4: Well, that's part of the commercialization, the scale-up, is getting the seaweed. CSIRO is not really in the business of growing seaweed. <laughs> we're, we're in the business of developing products and ideas that are feasible for impact globally, and I'm in the environmental business, so I'm working on the environmental aspects of food production. We, as you said earlier, it's win-win-win. It certainly is, because if you... Look at the seaweed from the from the base. When you grow the seaweed, you can use it to scrub the ocean. So we can use waste nutrients from aquaculture like salmon farming, um, barramundi farming, and prawn farming. And then and it can be done in regions that are all impoverished. So you can create a new economy for low-skill workers. And then once you have the product, you can feed it to animals and get a, an environmental benefit by dramatically reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So with a long chain of wind with this, and it's a natural product, it fits into uh, organic products. So yeah, it really has some huge potential to make a game-changing difference if we can get it out there, and the supply chain is what we need to fill.
2: Thanks so much for speaking to us today, Rob. It's been great.
4: Thank you very much. I appreciate coming on
0: your program.
2: <laughs> Thanks very
0: much. It's Mm. been a really uh, methane-heavy episode, hasn't it? It I didn't see this coming. It has. It came up out of nowhere.
1: Don't light a match.
0: (laughs) (laughs) If you enjoyed listening to Rob, why not hear him out at the pub? The pub? Hear him out at the pub. There's a country-wide science extravaganza coming up next month called Pint of Science. Have you heard of it?
1: I haven't, no. Talk to me all about it.
0: It's neat. Uh, I've been a few times. The scientists go to a pub near you and uh, talk about their research and you get to sit down and have a schooner, pint or a pot and uh, watch a PowerPoint presentation and um, yeah, just have a drink and watch them talk about their research and then for 40 minutes or so then you can have a conversation with them afterwards, ask them whatever you'd like. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's really great. I highly recommend it. Um, So do these guys,
1: they're going on tour around the country or are they different people, different pubs?
0: The latter. So, Rob will be speaking in Townsville on May the 16th. He'll be talking about cows, seaweed, and climate change. If you're not in Townsville, uh, head to the Pint of Science website and see a venue near you. I went to one in Piedmont, or Glebe, can't remember. They spoke about uh, sleepwalking and murder in your sleep. A guy got trial for killing someone in his sleep, got off because he had pathological sleepwalking.
1: I wonder how they proved that.
0: It was a very interesting talk. Can't remember the details, but... Um, <laughs> It was a few years ago But you now. should
2: go there, listeners. You should go. I heavily
0: recommend, I do.
1: It was a few schooners ago.
0: And speaking of other great science content, if you haven't already, make sure to check out Radio National's new science podcast hosted by Natasha Mitchell, uh, Science Friction, where we try and steer away from science and culture. Their show's all about it. The first episode is about uh, boy geniuses. They're
2: full of culture. We've just talked about cow burps. This spies.
1: show is not is full of a lot, but it's not culture that if it's, it's full like of.
0: it's like single cell, mm. like bacteria culture, we're rich. Mm. ways uh, If it's poo, we've got a lot of it. If culture... <laughs> we are absolutely rolling in it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, the first episode was about uh, boy geniuses and a 14-year-old who made a nuclear reactor. Have a listen. Great show. Next story, I'm going to talk about Neanderthals. So Neanderthals—they are human cousins. They're humans. Uh, we're in the same genus Homo, but in separate species, we're sapiens. They are Homo neanderthalensis—mouthful. Researchers publishing in the journal PLOS One have found what appears to be a decorated bone of a, a raven wing. What are your preconceptions of Neanderthals, Sophie?
2: You know, just like us, but uh, look slightly different. You have red you, hair. You don't hate them.
0: <laughs> 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 they look—they're similar to us. They don't look the same. You, it would probably look like they they'd stand out in the street, but they'd still look because like they're redheads. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so they lived in colder climates. They were in Europe, well, well, like tens or hundreds of thousands of years before Homo sapiens got there. They were in all over the place in Europe and it's colder up there. So they were there for so long that their bodies adapted to the cold. And when things adapt to the cold, they turn from whatever they were into more spherical shape. So just think of any cold animal, polar bear. So of. they just got fat.
2: That's me in winter.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, Um. they've got more barrel-like bodies. They're shorter. Their limbs get shorter because it, um, it's better for losing heat. You don't lose so much heat when you've got shorter limbs. Mm. That's why, you know, in frostbite, you, your toes and things fall off because it's your body trying to not your blood get cold. So Neanderthals have all these adaptations. It's well, it's br- more
1: about keeping the the more important the organs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: correct. Uh, <laughs> they had, maybe against what you might expect, larger skulls than us, and thus larger brains um, than Homo sapiens. But does is- that mean
1: more brain power?
0: Not necessarily. They had bigger brains. Because bre- th- this is one thing that
1: we can't really judge, can we? We can't really speak to their... Their intelligence.
0: There are at least three periods of interspecies relations, euphemism then, between us and Neanderthals, leading to 1% to 4% of our DNA in the modern age are coming from Neanderthals. So you've probably got some grandparents along the way. Again, that, that's another one that flies in the face of popular conceptions being like a, a club-wielding, grunting. They did have large foreheads. Like you know, like that, that brow, that characteristic mm. one you see in mm-hmm. far side cartoons. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, in cartoons, you don't really imagine them as being big, big-brained and uh, redheaded. Uh, so they've already found some compelling evidence to suggest how sophisticated this species is. So, and I might be biased, but it seems like they're on par with us. Well, uh, why didn't they survive? I don't that, know.
1: See, I'm going to blame the, people. Us people. Mm. But that means that we had something over them. We either had strength which meant diet, things like that, which meant probably intelligence over them.
0: We may have just been more, uh, what's that word? Nasty. Portable. Nasty, yeah. More inclined for war and just being a nastier, more barbaric people. But to
1: to be able to do that, we would have had to be stronger physically to, and then smarter. They may smarter have had
0: smaller populations. I'm not sure. I think we are at the root of I'm not, I'm not, animals. And to some degree, you know, 4% of them lives on inside us today, so they weren't completely... Wiped out. Anyway, uh, in the past, Neanderthals at
2: home don't freak out, picturing a tiny Neanderthal living inside you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, that? <laughs> what have we that? So Neanderthal... what's four
1: percent like?
0: My little toe. I'm not sure how genetics works like that. It is, no, it does. <laughs> I think you're fine, Jesse. It does. So yeah, your two front teeth. <laughs> Neanderthal bones have been found alongside hundreds of bird bones, and the bird bones had a little notches cut out of them with the flight feathers, which are those large, beautiful feathers in the birds. So they've actually sat down, they've carved them all out, collected these feathers and their ideas that they may have been used for clothing or display purposes, like a, a chieftain or something. And the birds that they're actually harvested from were bad food animals. So it seemed that that was ornamental. And I don't know if you guys remember, but this was big news at the time, for me at least. This time last year, uh, researchers found... Oh, I remember
1: this, Sophie?
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. It already takes me back. <laughs> Classic. Back, <laughs> to last year. Back
0: 200,000 years. Um, <laughs> so caves in France, they found some of the world's oldest stone structures built by them not us they actually went in the Neanderthals got stalagmites, mm-hmm. the mites, which are things that grow up from the ground and they lopped them off and then arranged them into like big huge circles six metres plus and um, stacked 400 stones made this weird thing and little piles and almost like a hearth they perhaps using it for cooking and what's strange is they actually made these structures 300 metres inside a cave where it would have been pitch black absolutely no light and they so they've, they've carried torches and fire would have been a big collaborative effort to knock off these rocks and make these amazing structures. But um, that was 176,000 years ago. So the the incisions on this raven bone, are, uh, they're distinctly a pattern, and they know that because it precludes butchery. They, they were back-and-forth movements, soaring with a small stone tool, like a little knife, and uh, they analysed them. And you can see the Neanderthal has gotten this length of bones quite small. They've made these notches, and there were two points where the notches were too far apart, and it looked dissatisfying. So they've put in extra little notches in between these gaps to fill it in to make it a complete pattern. So it's almost like they had an aesthetic uh, want to complete this. So... They strangely for the study they got in these participants and they gave them turkey bones of the same size as these raven bones. Human participants. Whoa, 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 Where whoa, whoa! you jumped. <laughs> 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 You've jumped. Where have you? They got human Homo sapiens and they gave them in modern day. Modern day, yeah. No, they went back in time. Oh, <laughs> <home>. <laughs> and they gave them these bones and they told them make equally distant notches in these bird bones and then they compared the two and they were remarkably similar. So they just they suggest that there was. So it was
1: these people that planted these things backwards.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh. so that's definitely the conclusion I'm going to come, <laughs> come with. Yeah.
2: So it turns out that we have really similar behavior to Neanderthals. We
0: have similar aesthetic values, yeah. Okay. When we want to create notches that are sort of equidistant from each other, they're parallel with what this other species would do. So we've got shared... And that's shared visual system. What kind
2: also, of demented person would try and create jagged, you know, non-equidistant cuttings?
0: Who knows? They could have been bored. They could have been using it as a little piece in a the necklace. They've got... um what they think were different shells that they've pierced holes in to thread thread through for a necklace. Mm. Maybe they were carving up the bird wing and then just did it and am like, oh, may as well just make this a complete pattern. Mm. Um, Yeah, so it's just, I don't know, every piece of thing that comes in about Neanderthals just blows my mind.
1: 176,000 years, you say? Yes. Okay, they've cut holes in some bird bones. (laughs) No, 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 no. No, they've cut grooves in some bird bones. Yeah. Right. They're saying that the birds that these bones have come from were no good for eating. How did they oh, know not, that?
0: Not these ones in particular. This oh, was okay. a raven. So they probably ate them. No, the ones where they plucked the feathers from, oh, right. they were tiny little birds, so it's just a waste. The
1: bones, How do you reckon you'd go surviving 176,000 years ago? So I couldn't <clears> survive <throat> now, Adrian. <laughs> oh, yeah.
2: I, w- I think I'd love it. Yeah? Eating so do you reckon Robbie. you'd be
1: able to, to more survive, really? Like grow
2: things yeah, to eat? I'd find my group of people, you know, we'd band together. What's not to mm-hmm. love?
0: Oh, it'd be interesting. It'd be an interesting experiment, too undertake. I am so dependent on modern society I would wither and evaporate the second the electricity went off. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. That's the end to... Is that it? That's it. It's it. Doesn't it fly? Episode 6 of Interanauts. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, tell your friends and family uh, if you'd like to learn more about Rob Kinley's research with seaweed and cow's methane or the research on nickel and the world's end Head to the CSIRO blog, which is blog.csiro.au. No comment there. No comment there. What?
2: <laughs> <laughs> but there's an echo in here, apparently. See <laughs> you, listen.
0: <laughs> Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.
3: oh, 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 oh